Well, good morning again. It is a good morning to be in the house of the Lord with the people. Amen. So, we are studying in Philippians chapter 2 this week. And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. I'm just going to go through the first 11 verses. And I'll just be reading the verses, the passages, as I go through the message. Let's take time to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are our awesome God. You are mighty. You've done so much. We thank you for your, your incredible love for us, Lord. We are overwhelmed by your love for us. And what it caused you to do for us, Lord. So help me as I teaching your word, that it would go forth in your power, Lord, that I would be a vessel for, for you to work through, Lord, that uh, I might decrease and you might increase, Lord, and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help me to speak and help us to hear what you'd have us hear this morning. We thank you for your word, that it is true. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it never changes, Lord, and we can trust Thank you. Amen. So if you were to ask, poll a bunch of people to name somebody who they would think would be the most humble person in, who, who that they know of, maybe in the last hundred years or so, you'd probably get a very, various answers. A lot of people would probably Think of somebody like Mother Teresa, right? The nun who devoted her life to helping the poor in Calcutta, India. And uh, surprisingly, a high-profile uh, example of humility. Uh, but there's many more that we could think of. There's many um, missionaries, pastors, um, those who serve in, in various ways in health and given their lives in service, in humble service to others. And there's many just day-to-day -day examples of just small acts of humility that often go unknown, maybe except for those that have been helped. But, you know, humility isn't about drawing attention <laughs> to itself, right? It's about just giving and serving of ourselves. And for the believer, it's, just, it's not just about the things we do, but it's the attitude that governs our actions. Humility is defined, one way of defining it is as a modest view of our own importance or a lack of pride or arrogance. It's a funny thing, humility, is that we talk about it a lot, but not about how to become humble. How we gain humility is often to undergo humiliation. And we don't like that process. I don't like that process. The action of being humbled or lowered. And really, kind of the true test of humility is how we respond when something humiliating happens to us, right? And, you know, do, do we, as I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself here too, do we get ashamed and angry, try to cover it up? 
and blustering or putting down others? Or do we respond in grace and peace and just laugh at ourselves and seek to learn and grow? You know, this, this is real for all of us, and myself included. This doesn't mean that we're to be doormats and let people walk all over us, but it is kind of a, a gauge or a test to see where our general spiritual attitude is at. And again, this is by no means easy. It does not come naturally to us in our sinful nature. Our, our prideful nature will always try to resist being humble. It, it, it is not the way of, of the world. And so we all struggle in this. But hopefully in, through this passage, we can maybe get some help and find how to cultivate this attitude in our lives, hopefully. So I'll pick it up in verse one, chapter 2, verse 1, Philippians. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and con or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he starts out this passage with so, or therefore, in some translations. It's, it's a linking word tying this passage to what Paul has said in the previous chapter in context. So to go back, to recap again, Paul is writing this from Rome in prison or house arrest at least. And he's writing, surprisingly, even from prison, to encourage the Philippian church, right? They should be encouraging him, and they did. They sent some help, which Paul is very grateful for. And he just loves this church. They have supported him throughout his ministry. And he's just, they bring him such joy. And so he's just rejoicing in Christ's work in and through them. And he's, he's just always praying for them praying with full assurance that Christ will complete the good work in them that he's begun, that he will be spiritually maturing them, transforming them into Christ-like character by the Holy Spirit, and that in that process they would abound in love, discernment or wisdom, and good works or good fruit. And so Paul also wants to reassure them about his imprisonment. He isn't worried by his circumstances. In fact, he's able to rejoice. He's encouraged that God is still at work. That even though some are trying to use his imprisonment to discredit Paul or get him into more trouble, he's not discouraged. He, he's, he's encouraged that the gospel is still being preached, whether through good intentions or bad. That, that's all that matters to him. About his own personal condition, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 21. So either way, Paul is at peace and contentment with his circumstances. If God allows Paul to live, which is what he is convinced that God will do because he wants to be there to help the Philippians, if he allows Paul to live, he will use his life for the cause of the gospel of Christ. If he dies and, 
and God calls him home to heaven, he's rewarded with being in the presence of his Lord and Savior. It's a win-win both, both ways. And so he then exhorts the Philippians to live holy lives as citizens of heaven with character worthy of the gospel, to be united, to stand firm, united in spirit and mind, working together for the cause of Christ. And he says their integrity, their unity, and their ministry is a sign to the world of God working in and through them. But he also warns that, that this will mean that they will come in conflict with the world. The world won't like this. Satan won't like this, our enemy. And so, just as that he is suffering for Christ in prison, they will suffer and struggle also. And we too, in different ways, but that is part of the Christian life. And so this is the context. And so keeping this in mind, and also remembering the theme of Philippians, which is joy. So, raises the question, with all these things, going on, you know, seeking to live, uh, uh, follow Christ in being a, an ambassador for the gospel and living a holy life and, you know, being attacked or persecuted from outside and having our own sinful nature attacking us from inside us, from within. How do we handle that? How, what is the attitude that we should have? And how can we have Paul's attitude? of joy, even despite the circumstances. And so, as, as always, really, the, the, the answer is to start with the attitude of humility, specifically humbling ourselves under God. And, and that's really how we start our Christian life, right? We, we humbly accept our own sinfulness and need for God and accept Jesus into our lives to forgive us. So, back to the text. Verse 1 starts with, so if, or therefore, or consequently. So there's this expectation of something else going to follow this now. Um, you know, if there's anybody who is familiar with computer programming, it's a common statement, an if-then statement. Conditional, if A is true, then B is the result. And so Paul is kind of making this statement. If we have a relationship with Christ and have experienced his blessings and we are surrendered, surrendered to his Holy Spirit working in us and transforming us, he will produce his good fruit in our lives as a result. That is true. So he asks the question, have we been encouraged by Christ? Do we have encouragement from Christ? Well, the answer should be resoundingly yes. Many different ways that Christ encourages us in our daily lives. Reading the word, hearing the word, singing songs to him, hearing songs about him, praying, being prayed for, kind words being spoken to us or kind words, or us speaking kind words. These are all ways of encouragement or somebody doing something for us. Um, there's many different ways we can be encouraged by the Lord, by Christ. And also, do we have comfort from the love of Jesus? 
Amen. Yes. What a great comfort we have in the love of Jesus. And, you know, again, as we're singing, we're overwhelmed by it. You know, really, to ponder how much he truly loves us. To know that nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit of Christ speaks this to our hearts. He is our encourager. He is our comforter. He is our helper. And if we have the Holy Spirit, do we also participate or share in fellowship through him? Yes, we do. 1 John 1, 3-4 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's bringing that joy in again. What a joy and blessing it is that we get to have fellowship with our holy and awesome God who's reigning in heaven. We don't deserve it any in ourselves. It is all because of Jesus' work on the cross, forgiving us, justifying us. Do we have any love or affection from Christ? Again, overwhelmingly, more than we can know. Again, he died on the cross for us poor sinners. Took God's wrath on us, poured out on him, and poured out his love on us by his blood shed for us that cleanses us. You know, reading passages and just thinking about how much God loves me and you, you know, it just gives such hope and peace and assurance. Have we received sympathy or compassion from Christ? Well, the cross is the greatest demonstration of compassion, of love in action that has ever been and will ever be. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so we can boldly approach his throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. So Paul asks these rhetorical questions, lists some of the blessings of knowing Christ. Not an exhaustive list by any means, but important for the point that he's making. So if we've received and participated in these blessings from Christ, what now? What do we do? So Paul says that since we've received these blessings from Christ, what would truly bring him and God joy is to share these things with each other. And in the manner as Christ has acted towards us and blessed us, we are to treat and act towards and treat one another, encouraging one another, comforting one another, participating in fellowship with one another, most importantly, loving one another with the same love that Christ has for us. It's the commandment of Jesus, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's right from Jesus. That's his desire for us, that we love one another. And also that we should be in full accord. Now, he's not saying that we all have to drive a Honda 
Sorry, I had to throw that one in. <laughs> but what he means is we should all be united in our purpose and focus, namely the gospel of Christ. And there shouldn't be infighting or divisions or cliquishness going on in the church. And the Philippian church was pretty good, you know, but there's, we'll see later that they, they did have a bit of an issue with some fighting and, and personalities going on in the church. So we have common union through the Holy Spirit, so we should strive for unity in the bond of peace. Not uniformity of all being clones. We can have our own thoughts and opinions. We can disagree in minor issues, but doing it in a loving and humble way and not make them the main thing. And just as we are subject and submit to God, we also are to be obedient and submit to the leaders that God has placed over us in the church. Again, not to major in the minor things, but keep the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus and the gospel. Verse 3, Paul now switches to the imperative tone into a more commanding tone. He's saying, tells us to do nothing out of selfishness or conceit. This is not to be our attitude or motivation as believers. It once was in the flesh, but no, no more. And we can look around. It doesn't take long to see this is how the world operates. It's all about self. Looking out for number one, getting all that you can get, whatever it takes, no matter who you step on, it is the cult of self. That is the idol that we worship. Not for Christians, though. It's the opposite. We're, it says we're to count others more important than ourselves. Instead of ourselves on the throne, God is on the throne then others, then ourselves. Again, it's tough because our sinful nature wants to jump on that throne again. And we need to constantly just, you know, pray and, and give, look for, uh, ask Christ to, to help us in that. It's not that we can't care about our own needs, of course, just not exclusively, not just being so self-focused that we're ignoring the needs of those around us. We need to care about others also, both in the church and in the community. No one is, is any better than anyone else. We're all sinners, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it's interesting for this idea of humility Paul uses a Greek word that's not found anywhere else in Scripture. I'll try to pronounce it. It's a cool word. Tapana prosuna. It means having a humble opinion of oneself or a deep sense of one's own moral littleness. I like that. The more aware of our sin we are, the more aware of the amazing love and mercy of God, the more humble we'll be. That's, that's a humbling thing. It's really all rooted in the grace of Jesus. The list of blessings we saw earlier 
It's all what he's done for us and, and blesses us with. So when we stand on the assurance of Christ's love, encouragement, comfort, and fellowship, we have the strength to make ourselves low because we know our position in Christ. I'll repeat that. When we stand on the assurance of Christ's love, encouragement, comfort, and fellowship, we have the strength to make ourselves low because we know our position in Christ. There's a wonderful liberty and freedom in that, that it doesn't matter, right? What others may think, right? It's what God thinks that's important. And like Paul, then be able to face whatever circumstances life may throw at us, whatever difficulties, whatever struggles, whatever persecutions, we can face them with joy, resting in the assurance of God's love and grace. And again, it really all points back to Jesus and his work on the cross, and that's where Paul's going next. Verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul brings it right back to Jesus and says it's really his attitude of humility we need to emulate. He's our greatest example of humility that has ever been or will be. It's called the great condescension, some call it, the stepping down from heaven. And as followers of Christ, this is the mindset of humility we are all to have in common. Paul says he was in the form of God, speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ in heaven. More than an outer form, it, it means this, this is his nature. He, he is his complete nature and existence, he is fully God. This, 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 this is who he is. And he, equality with God, he says, wasn't something to be grasped by him because he already had it. He, he, he is fully God. He was one of the three persons, is one of the three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is three persons in one. Jesus is one person in the Trinity. Picture, again, of the pre-incarnate Jesus in form and nature, one with and equal with God. Dwelling in glory, surrounded by angels singing, holy, holy, holy. That is, that is the picture. And it says he emptied himself, not of divinity. He's still fully God. It's a change in form, really from the form of God to the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of man called the incarnation or taking on flesh. The act where Christ took our human nature into union with his divine person. That's what it means. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Two natures, one person. Called, fancy word, hypostatic union. You can look that up. That's what it's called. That's But just to know that 
God, Jesus is fully man and fully God. And what's amazing, he stepped down from heaven, left the glory of heaven to come down to being born as a, as a baby. And not just as a baby, but as a servant, going even lower, taking the lowest position, you know, to reach everyone. So that even the lowest born person could relate to Jesus. Jesus took the lowest position so he could relate to us. And Jesus tells his disciples this about his really stepping down and, and what his mission really was. And it's funny, after they were arguing about who was the greatest, right? They, they were just fully, as you and I are, they're, they're fully in the world and just thinking of, of the, the way the world works and jockeying for position, right? Who's the greatest? So Jesus, in Mark 10.42, tells them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as the ransom for many. So Jesus lays out, this is, this is the economy of heaven. There's the opposite of the world. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, become a servant. Following Christ's example, he, he gives the example of, of how to be in great in God's kingdom. So uh, amazingly, that Jesus, the creator and sustainer of everything, stepped down from the glory of heaven, became a man, even more so humbled himself in becoming a servant, and even more so, so obedient to God, the Father's will, that he came to earth to die for us. And not just any death, but the most painful and humiliating form of execution ever conceived, death on the cross. And he was beaten and tortured and whipped. All of these things suffered for us, and bled and died for us. For us, because he loved us so much. He wanted to have a relationship with us and knew it was the only way that we could have our sin forgiven and the barrier between us and God taken down by his broken body. And you know what? It says he went joyfully. So there's that joy coming in again. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? We saw that in Philippians 1, right? He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's two themes of Philippians there, kind of in one verse. And so, you know, he, he did this for the joy, knowing the joy that it would bring 
God, that we can now have a relationship with him and the joy that it would bring us, that we can now have our sin forgiven and our, uh, have, have peace and joy and victory in our lives and have eternal life with God the Father in heaven. And so this leads us to the passage that he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God that leads us into the next passage about the risen and exalted Christ seating at the, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So three days after his death, Jesus rose in victory over sin and death, and later ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, the place of honor because of his humility and obedience in coming to earth and going to the cross. God has honored and highly exalted Jesus, making him the Lord of all except himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So God has highly exalted Jesus. And highly exalted the name of Jesus, giving him the name above every other name. Some say this refers to his title of Lord. But either way, it is Jesus who is being exalted, the name of Jesus. And this is a certainty that one day, every single knee will bow down in worship before him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That will happen before the throne of heaven one day. And this exaltation of Jesus will ultimately be for the glory of God the Father. A couple notes finishing off. Noticing that it is God who is exalting Jesus, not him exalting himself. Jesus simply obeyed and humbled himself to God the Father's will. God did the exalting. God's word promises if we humble ourselves, God will also exalt us at the right time. First Peter 5, 5-7 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Sounds familiar. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We don't humble ourselves in the hope to one day be exalted, but just to obediently, like Christ, follow him. It's by his grace that we are exalted, that, that he blesses us with anything. And so we can trust in his good and perfect plan for our lives. We can trust him with our lives and cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. His promises and his love and grace give us the strength to be humble. He, he's got our back. He cares for us. 
And another point that one day we will all bow our knees before God and declare Jesus as Lord, everyone. And even those who have resisted God all their life will one day before the throne of Jesus have to bow down and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, you know, maybe, maybe today you're listening and you've never done that. I encourage you to take that step. Why, why wait until then? Why do it now, right? Encourage you in that. Romans 10, 9 to 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, again, God is speaking to your heart and calling you, saying, submit and know me. If you don't know Jesus, I I urge you, go ahead. And if you need to talk to somebody, um, feel free to do that. So in conclusion, you know, the Christian life, you know, not, not to, uh, you know, have rose-colored glasses, the, the Christian life is, is one of humility and struggle. That Paul in the Bible clearly, clearly says that, that we will have troubles in this life. But Jesus has said, I have overcome the world. So it's one of humility, one of struggle, but also one of great joy, the greatest joy, the greatest love, the greatest blessing that we can ever know. And so the Holy Spirit through Paul is, is calling us towards following Jesus' example of humility and calling us to that in part of Christian maturity, in part of him beginning a good work in us and completing it and having good fruit in our lives. That, it comes through having this attitude of, of humility. And really, again, humbling ourselves under God. Not having a false humility. I should mention that. There's some that, um, Paul talks about that. Um, but some put on a, a false humility. And, and it's kind of this, you know, the self-flagellation you know, or something. Oh, you know, I'm so horrible. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you are. But you know what? God is greater. And God loves you. And that's why he came to earth. And so... You know, it, this false humility draws attention to itself, right? That's not, that's not the real humility. So God is calling us to humility, all for the, the building up of his body, the church, and for our joy and ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the awesome and amazing example of Jesus who left the glory of heaven, took on humanity, and lived as a servant and died as a servant so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with you. And that we can know joy and peace and love and have eternal life with you. We're so thankful. This is a challenging topic, and it 
goes against our, our nature, our sinful fallen nature. So Lord, we ask for your help. Give us the strength to be weak. Give us the strength to be humble. Resting in your grace, resting in your love and your promises, your encouragement, your comfort. Help us to share that with one another, to be united, to be uh, of one mind, one body, focusing on you, Jesus, loving one another, and giving our lives for you, ultimately, loving those around us. Lord, help us in this, Lord. We need your help. We thank you for the promise that you who are faithful, who began a good work, will be faithful to complete it. And we just praise you and give you the praise.